0: Our first scripture reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Perfectly pointless, says the teacher, perfectly pointless. Everything is pointless. I am the teacher. I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to investigate and to explore by wisdom all that happens under heaven. It's an unhappy obsession that God has given to human beings. When I observed all that happens under the sun, I realized that everything is pointless, a chasing after wind. I hated the things I worked so hard for here under the sun because I will have to leave them to someone who comes after me. And who knows whether that one will be wise or foolish. Either way, that person will have control over the results of all my hard work and wisdom here under the sun. That too is pointless. I then gave myself up to despair as I thought about all my laborious, hard work under the sun. Because sometimes those who have worked hard with wisdom, knowledge, and skill must leave the results of their hard work as a possession to those who haven't worked hard for it. This too is pointless. It's a terrible wrong. I mean, What do people get for all their hard work and struggles under the sun? All their days are pain, and their work is aggravation. Even at night, their hearts don't find rest. This too is pointless. Our second reading comes from the Gospel according to Luke. Someone from the crowd said to him, "Teacher." Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me as judge or referee between you and your brother? Then Jesus said to them, Watch out. Guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions, even when someone is very wealthy. Then he told them a parable. A certain rich man's land produced a bountiful crop. He said to himself, what will I do? I have no place to store my harvest. Then he thought, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. That's where I'll store all my grain and goods. And I'll say to myself, you have stored up plenty of goods, enough for several years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, Fool, tonight you will die. Now who will get the things you have prepared for yourself? This is the way it will be for those who hoard things for themselves and aren't rich toward God. This is God's story for God's people. Thanks be to God. To hear our
1: scriptures read aloud today, Kind of makes me wonder, and maybe you too, is that really good news? We're told the gospel, the scriptures are good news, and I trust the Spirit has some for us today. We're about halfway through the summer sermon series led by Pastor Adam, entitled Understanding the Bible. And it's a series of teaching sermons. Sorry about that. And Adam continues to lift up the, the cycle that permeates the whole of the scripture. Creation, covenant, brokenness, new creation. God creates the world. God makes a covenant with all of creation, all of us, to be our God and for us to be God's people. In our free will, we're given choice to stay in that covenant or not. And in our choices, sometimes we fall away into brokenness. And then God ever labors to recreate us, bringing us new creation. Is this a distraction? No, okay. Put it out here. So last week, a passage we read was from the prophet Jeremiah. This is the new covenant I will make with my people, God said. I will put my instruction in their minds and on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For me, this passage reminds us that our relationship with our creator begins and dwells right here, deep within. It's engraved on our hearts. And again, though, as finite humans and citizens of the glorious realm of our creator, we also live right here in this world as humans. And we're subject to the ways and the voices and the callings that this world offers us every day. Some of which can trip us up, boggle us, or leave us wanting and wondering. And we see this in the Ecclesiastes passage in the life of the teacher who is speaking to us in that passage. He tells us he's known a life of royalty and that he's worked really hard. So he's known power, wealth, status, and lots of material goods. But he wonders out loud, what is it all for? Teachers have wisdom, and this teacher applies all the wisdom he has in seeking the answer to that question. What is the point of it all? the striving, the toil, the gaining, the anxiety, the sleepless nights, the worry about security. He sees that he can work hard, gain material security, maybe gain prestige and the security of status, but eventually, like everyone else, he will die, leaving all for others to do as they will, to benefit from or to ignore all that he's toiled for. And he will have nothing to say about that. So the frustrated teacher spinning this around and around finally sums it all up, vanity. All is vanity. In the version we heard today, pointless. Everything is pointless, a chasing after the wind, the teacher says. The Hebrew word here translated as pointless or vanity, it's helpful to understand that that word literally means vapor or breath. The word is hebel. And as biblical scholar Blake Cooey points out, the teacher is conveying that everything is transient, impermanent, that nothing one does will last. It'll just be done over again by somebody else. This story invites us to think about our own priorities, about where our attention is directed on a daily basis. Is it inward to the indwelling God of the covenant in whose image we are created, this image stamped on our very heart and soul? Or is our attention mostly outward to the clamoring voices that want our attention, telling us to strive, to be defined, by what we look like, our status, our stuff, to focus on externals. This crosses over nicely with our gospel today from the Gospel of Luke. Here we see another teacher with much wisdom, Jesus, and he helps his followers pause to consider the same. Where does their attention lie? In his teachings and by the way he lives, he is always helping the people, his followers and opponents alike, to pause and take stock of their lives in order that they might discover God. Well, someone in the crowd of those following Jesus this particular day said, Teacher, tell my brother to share the family inheritance with me. According to Jewish law at that time, the firstborn sons were given a double portion of their father's inheritance. And maybe this is at play here in this story, but for whatever reason, the man wants Jesus to defend his property rights against his brother. And Jesus responds for all to hear, I've not come to serve as referee between you and your brother. And then... After warning this man to guard himself against greed, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who will come to be known as the rich fool. Like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, this man is well off. He's hardworking. He's very successful in acquiring worldly wealth. We don't hear this man considering how to disperse his wealth, perhaps how to share his crops with those farmers whose crops didn't do so well that year. We don't hear him thinking, I have enough, and be done with it, and be a good steward of what he does have. Instead, he tears down his buildings. He builds bigger ones to store his ever-accumulating surplus. And he stores up until the day comes when he will deem that he's stored up enough for several years, when at last he can finally put his feet up, take it easy, and rest in security. However, as the parable goes on, the day of his death arrives without warning. And in the parable, God says, you have been a fool. All this storing up for yourself Now what will that get you after you die? This is how it will be for those who are rich toward themselves but are not rich toward God. We may be able to feel the point Jesus is trying to make. This is not an uncommon teaching in the scriptures. As one biblical commentary puts it, this parable is not only about tangible possessions, which many of us can relate to in our consumer culture. Jesus' comment does not specify money or material goods. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, he says. Well, there are other things, many things we can call a treasure. Some of us might think our physical health is a treasure or our relationships, our children, maybe our experiences of seeing the world, even our spiritual treasure, experiences we've had of God that have lifted us up, but we were too shy perhaps to share it with others. Whatever our response to this parable is, we can get the point that an unhealthy relationship to whatever treasure possesses us may take us away from God. And here's what's important to remember. God did not create us to live with guilt and shame. Jesus did not come to teach us that message either. That's not the point of Jesus' sermons and parables. They are meant, and God's scriptures are meant, however, to set us free. To call us into life abundant which happens when we live intimately with the God who dwells right here intimately with us and when we dwell intimately with one another. So I'd like to consider this parable and what does it look like to be rich toward God as compared to be rich toward self? And there's a, a, a Christian artist who creates Christian art I'd like to take have us look at. This is by... a. Uh, a man, an artist named Jim Janknet, and this is called The Rich Fool. It is his rendition of this parable. I'd like to point out a few things, and I encourage you to take a closer look. There's so much going on here, but you can see off to the left, this is our rich man in his big house, and all around the perimeter are possessions that somehow are in that home. You see at the top a bulldozer that has bulldozed down the small storage buildings he had to make bigger ones. All of these things are common to our own households. But you see around, the landscape is dark, dry, cacti. And it's pretty clear he's enjoying a feast, wine, looks like a big steak. And he's all by himself. There's a beautiful painting on the wall. And this is the day the angel of death is visiting him. He was unaware, unprepared. And what I want to point out, in the room to the right of the dining room is a small living room with modern furniture and a work of art, a sculpture of a figure And it's hard to see at this distance, but in the middle of the chest of that figure is the shape of a heart, and it is vacant. There's a hole in his soul. And it seems as if he is pointing, gazing at the neighbors, the house next door. A small, very modest home, full of the light of an eight-member family around a dining table. Perhaps they're sharing about their day, sharing their, their highs and their lows, what's going on in their lives, things they're scared about, things they're joyful about or hopeful about. And around their home is life, trees, toys, evidence that they are playful, We heard in the song about restless, and one of the church fathers, St. Augustine said, in a prayer of confession to God, said, God, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. That sculpture is pointing to the community that we are called to live in. God, our creator and our covenant maker, our covenant keeper says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Not you will be my person, for we are part of a community of people, the global family of God, fellow humans, all creation. Whenever we feel encumbered or trapped, or all alone in life, or worn out by our strivings, seeking security in things that are temporary, which can never feel that vacancy inside, like that sculpture with the vacant heart. We remember who we were made for, in whom we were called, are called to rest in. Father Greg Boyle, an author that I have mentioned to you before, a little background again. He is a Jesuit priest who founded Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. And through Greg, or G, as his team of workers at Homeboy Industries call him so lovingly, his staff of mostly former gang members called homies, homeboys, homegirls, Through this ministry, God is recreating lives, healing brokenness. That cycle of covenant-making, breaking, remaking, recreating goes on right here in our own lives. And this ministry is helping those traumatized and those who are lost to discover their true identity as children of a loving God, utterly loved and accepted just as they are, and G and the homies form deep friendships on this journey of recovery and reclaiming themselves as God's kids. And in his recent book, The Whole Language The Power of Extravagant Tenderness, Boyle shares about a homie named Sergio, whom G calls his own personal spiritual director. Sergio, former gang member, recreated. One day sent G an email with just one line. Let us continue to unlock eternity for each other, Sergio wrote. For each other, one another, implying togetherness in community. No talk of the things that are temporary of the world. Sergio knows about eternal things. One of the blessings when you're a pastor in a culture that when you first meet someone, we often say, so what do you do? It often can lead to rich conversations when I share that I'm a pastor about someone's faith journey that end up blessing and really encouraging my own. And this new friend of mine, this this person named Kevin, shared with me that whenever he has an opportunity, he likes to ask people, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you think our eyes opened on this particular day again? He likes to help people consider their lives beyond the temporal, beyond the transient. And I asked him what motivates him to ask this question. And more or less it comes from his own faith journey, his own experiences with God who gives meaning to his life. Whenever there's a sense of vanity, he knows that he belongs to something eternal, something greater. And he feels called to help other people who might live in that sense of all is vanity to go deeper. So I asked him what kinds of responses he gets. And no surprise, again, because of our culture, he said most people mention their work, their jobs. Most of us are asked early on in our lives here in in our nation, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And we start dreaming early about a career, a vocation. And none of that is bad at all, but an invitation to go deeper. What motivates that desire to do this or be that? Who is the great mover underneath our desires? So Kevin's life in Christ instructs him to live differently. And he wants to touch the world outside of him in a different way, to make a difference for good, to help unlock eternity for one another. This is a way to be rich toward God. Another example of richness toward God is a friendship I share with a friend named Jamie. We've known each other several years, but. About twice a year now, she moved away, and about twice a year, we catch each other up. She shared about her own journey of recreation from past trauma of her childhood, and abusive marriage, a life of so often she was scapegoated and not respected and judged. She feared to be her true self because it was not always safe. She was born with the gift of a beautiful singing voice and uh, the gift to make music. And throughout her life, she was told, no, don't do it, or I won't let you. People were jealous or envious or controlling. So she always felt guilty, even when she did it on the sly, when she made her music. Well, recently, she went home to her parents' 65th wedding anniversary and was invited to sing along with her sisters, the very family that so often bullied her and did not make her feel at home and she experienced God setting her free. The chains were broken. She knew she was not called to guilt and shame, that that was not God's voice. She was called to sing and she sang with abandon. And this, I told her, inspired me in all the ways God is setting me free from whatever keeps me bound. As humans, we can all think of something where we might not feel 100% free. For me, many of you know I live with addiction and I'm in recovery and I work the 12-step program and every day God gives me new freedom and I was able to share with Jamie a testimony of that going on and how her story helped me to claim eternity that lives right here. And in response, Jamie said, that is why we are not to forsake the assembly. Now, I knew that was some translation of a Bible verse I would heard before. So I asked her what she was quoting from, and she said it's Hebrews 10, 25, where the author writes, and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembly, meaning not neglecting to meet together with one another like that family around the table, like all of us right here, like your check-in with your life partner or your children or your best friend at the end of a day or with your parents, not neglecting to assemble for the purpose of encouraging one another. This is rich toward God. That's what that looks like. We are created to need one another in ways that will set us free and grow us in love. Being rich toward God means unlocking eternity for one another as we share our lives, our stories of pain and sorrow and renewal, our stories of old joy, new joy. And when we do, we help each other feel God's heartbeat When we love, that is God's heartbeat, we feel and and give away. And it's that kind of love that makes real and known the oneness we have in Christ and with one another, the oneness that is eternal and leads to a life rich toward God and rich.
0: Thanks be to God. Amen.